I don't know about you guys, but are there places that you go to or that you drive to that, that like, as you're going, it kind of just floods your memories of when you were a kid or younger? One of those is in North, the north end of Tacoma. As I'm driving on 16 and I get off at Orchard and I work my way uh, past the old Wilson High School, which is Silas now, I think. And then I, I turn left on, on Pearl Street. Like all these memories of going to my grandma's house come back to me. So many summer Saturdays we spent there working in her yard, running through the sprinkler, cooking hot dogs on a little hibachi. Sundays, we would go to church uh, in, in University Place, and as a family, we would drive over to Grandma's house, and we would have Sunday dinner at my Grandma's house, and, and just driving there now as an adult, I still, I kind of have almost like deja vu, right? I mean, like I'm driving and I can almost remember being a kid in the back of the van, driving to Grandma's house, remembering the meals how they tasted, how it smelled, her sofa, right? The backyard. I mean, all those things just like they flood back into my memories. And, and so as an adult, I may be driving up there uh, to go meet with somebody or, or, or have a coffee with somebody or whatever it might be. And it's just like all of a sudden it just overwhelms me. It's like this heavy, heavy deja vu. And today in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel... We're going to kind of see a heavy deja vu, okay? So if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, two weeks ago exactly, we, we saw David hiding in a cave, Saul coming in to relieve himself, and then the story that played out from there. That's chapter 24. So if it's your first Sunday, all you got to do is look back a couple of chapters. You'll see in 1 Samuel 24 a story uh, of Dave and Saul and their interaction. Well, today in chapter 26, where we're going to be today, 1 Samuel 26, there's a story that's very, very similar. And so there have even been people before been like, are we talking about the same story like even commentators or, or, or some people who have put a lot of study into it, they're like, is this really the same story? Because there's a lot of similarities. Um, but I truly believe the more I read this week, the more I prayed through this, this chapter, the more I looked at it, I don't think so. I think this is a second occasion that this kind of situation happens. We'll get there in a minute, exactly what happens. But, and I, I think the author is just pointing out that David is in a season of life right now where he is being pursued by his enemy. And he's relentless. Saul is relentless. If you remember back, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember at the end of that chapter, Saul apologizing to him and saying, you know, come home, David. You're my son. And, and David's like, yeah, I've kind of learned my lesson. I think I'm going to stay out here. And Saul goes home, right? Because he couldn't trust him. And here we are just two chapters later. And we're kind of going to see the same thing. And so how does David continue to engage with Saul, the enemy, right? How does he continue to be faithful to God and not take out some personal vengeance or say, man, this guy's tried to kill me multiple times. He's been chasing me for 15, 20 years at this point. Like it's getting crazy. How do I not Lord? How do I not? have a, 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 a right standing before you by still taking this guy out, 
right? It wasn't like David had never killed anybody, but he knew, and Jeremy and I were talking about this this morning, he knew that this was God's anointed. David has continued to listen to God and to ask God for clarification and for leading, and he continues to do it no matter what happens. And so the question I want to ask you today In your life right now, do you have an enemy that's been coming at you? Whether it's somebody at work, somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood. And how are you doing at loving your enemies? Jesus talked about this when he was here on the earth. And we're seeing David live it out, right, in these stories. So again, we're trying to learn lessons from leaders in our study of First and Second Samuel. And I think one of them we can learn and we should be learning as we're looking at David's life is how well do you love your enemies? People who are against you, people who speak ill of you, people who are even trying to take you down. So I hope today, even though this might be deja vu for a lot of us, that you'll be able to learn something from this passage. So we're going to just jump right in here. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hikalah, which is beside the road on the east side of Jeshimon, but David remained in the wilderness. So let's, let's just pause there really quick. First of all, we see these Ziphites, right? These guys have not been good to David. So thinking back through 1 Samuel, this is a couple times that they've kind of come out and narked on him, right? They're telling on him. Remember the tattler from, you know, class? Maybe you were the tattler from class. But when somebody was doing something wrong, or if you saw somebody doing something that you thought wasn't good, you'd go and tell the teacher, right? Like you're tattling on him. Well, we see the Ziphs doing this, right? They know of David. They know of David killing Goliath. More likely than not, they even know that David is the anointed one to be the next king after Saul. And yet they think they're going to gain something from this. So they go and they're like, hey, I know we should be protecting this guy or at least leaving him neutral. But instead, we're going to tell Saul. Now, remember, David's got about 600 men. Saul, it looks like, again, he's got the chosen or the elite soldiers, right? So they're definitely a threat to David. Picking up at the end of verse three, where I left off there, it says, when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Now, the author does a really good job of kind of setting the stage. We talked about this in narrative. Narrative is storytelling, but there's still nuggets that we can learn from. So there's a lot of reading going through First and Second Samuel, kind of different than when we're going through maybe one of Paul's uh, letters to the churches. We might only cover three or four verses on a Sunday. This book, we're taking big chunks because it's a story. Well, the storyteller is saying, hey... Saul comes, he encamps around David, David goes and makes sure that he's there, right? He he doesn't sit and wait, he hears that Saul's coming, he's going to go and he's going to check it out for himself, right? And he sees this massive encampment of men. 
So, I mean, a lot of you guys are, are, are military. You probably can picture these size groups. I, I have a tough time. Like, I, I mean, I've gone to sporting events and things like that where, I, where there's large crowds. I've seen that. But this is like 3,000 men, soldiers, elite, ready to go after David, right, with their king there, Saul. And, and that's what this encampment was. And Saul, it says here, is sleeping in the middle of the encampment, right? And Abner, the commander of the army, the guy who took over for David, remember David was in that place before Saul kept trying to kill him. Um, and, and they were lying in this encampment. And so it literally could be translated inside the wagon wheel. Okay? So imagine they're sleeping right in the middle and then there's these circles of soldiers sleeping around him. And it's just this massive encampment, right? And they all encamped around him. So this giant pinwheel of sleeping super soldiers, right? I mean, these are the elite. These are the best of the best. And Saul is right there in the middle, okay? Abner, the son of... um, uh, the son of Nair, the commander of Saul's army, is introduced here. Powerful general. He's also, like I said, David's replacement. Because that's where David was before he got chased out of camp. Right? Um, so King Saul and Abner uh, are, are in the middle of this wagon wheel. And he's going to play quite a role in, in the coming study in First and Second Samuel. So remember his name. Picking up in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite... And to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeherah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck into the ground by his head. And and, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into the hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. This is, is a pretty cool set of verses here. I mean, there's a lot in this as I was reading through. Uh, David first starts out by going to talking to two, probably of his elite out of his 600, two of his best, or maybe it was just the two he came to first, right? And we see Ahimelech as this Hittite, Right, this mercenary, this, this guy that's with him, and, and Abishai, the son of Zariah, that makes Abishai David's nephew. Right, so those are the two guys that he talks to there. And Abishai says, I'm in. Right, he's like, I don't care if he doesn't want to go, I'll go with you. So imagine this we got the sleeping men, 3,000, and we got David and Abishai, and they make their way all the way to Saul who's sleeping, right? He's surrounded by these 3,000 men and they get all the way to the center of this camp, right? Abishai was, was part of David's crew, which, which for him, I mean, these were the guys that were sticking with him. They understood that David had been called, that he had been anointed, and they were gonna stay kind of faithful to him. So he's part of their, his elite force. We're gonna see wartime in the future, where he'll play a part in, but he's with him. And he goes with David all the way to the center of this circle. He says, I can take this guy out, right? He's like one stroke of the spear. I don't even need a second time. This guy knows what he can do. Now, 
As I was picturing these two soldiers making their way in to Saul, to where he was in the center of this encampment, I started thinking about chaperoning youth group events. I don't know, have any of you guys ever chaperoned junior high or high school youth group events or any coach or thing? Not a lot of hands. Wow. Jeremy, you and I might be the only people. But I remember quite often having to get up in the middle of the night, maybe I heard something, or one of the kids gets up to go to the bathroom, doesn't come back for a while, so you're trying to figure out, and you're like stepping over kids, right? You know, and you're trying not to step on kids. Can you imagine David making his way all the way to the middle of this circle of men, 3,000 of them around Saul to protect him, and he gets all the way up there. And Abishai's like, hey, he's right here. I could put this spear right through him. You know, and I mean, like this is, this is an intense scene. What's going on here? Right? So in this hushed tone, I think Abishai is like, can I end this? Is this, is, has God allowed us to get all the way in here so that I can finish off what needs to be done? They're tired of living on the run. I know David and his men are tired of it. And Abishai is like, we can end this. We know what God wants. We can take this into our own hands, right? And, and, and Abishai is probably even distant on Saul. Remember, Saul had chucked the spear at David twice and his own son once and missed every time. And Abishai is like, hey, this is only going to take me one time. I can take care of this, right? He is convinced that God has put them there for a reason, right? And they're, they're, they're standing right there. In verse 9, we see David's response, though. And this is beautiful. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David's story doesn't change, right? He knows that Saul is God's anointed and he's trusting God to take care of timing. So David, even though he had a chance to take out his enemy, he doesn't. Let's continue in verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that's at his head. And the jar of water. And let's go. So David took the spear and the water jar from Saul's head. And they went away. No man saw or knew that they had been there. None of them were awakened. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So David rightly forbids his nephew from killing Saul. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So obviously as I was reading this this week, I'm like, then why did you even go in there, David? Right? I mean, part of me was, this is a huge risk. Why did you risk this to go into the encampment when you knew that the goal couldn't be taking him out, right? David, though, is just reiterating what he said two chapters ago in, this, in, the, uh, in the caves. When Saul went in to relieve himself, all the guys are like, run him through with a sword. God's delivered him to your hands. You've got this, right? But he remembered the lesson that was learned from Nabal and Abigail. If you were here that week when we talked about them, uh, that vengeance is not ours to take. David knew that. Do you know that? Do I know that? Do I live a life that, that shows that? That I'm going to trust God? Or am I somebody that's always looking to take out vengeance against those who have wronged me? Well, here we see that David sees that and says, as the Lord lives, uh, the Lord will strike him. 
whether it's today or in another day or when he goes into battle, like he totally puts it back upon the Lord. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to trust God. But he does do something that's kind of interesting. He takes this as an opportunity to grab Saul's spear and his water jug. He says, I'm going to take those with me, right? I want to show Saul one more time that I am not coming for him, right? That was what Saul was so convinced of. David's going to kill me, so I need to kill him. David's going to be king next, so I need to kill David so that Jonathan can be king, right? I mean, that's the way this is all playing out in his mind. So the, the spear that had been hurled at David multiple times to try to kill him, he grabs and takes with him, right? That spear that kind of represents death, right? Or could represent death. And then, of course, we see the jar of water. Uh, For any of you that know, if you've been out in the desert, you need that water. And here we have Saul and his water. Water represents life. You need water, right? You got to have clean water. And they grab that water, which was kind of a representation of life. So you see death with the spear, life with the water. He grabs them both. He gets out of there. And here we do see how David and Abishai got to the center of this circle. It says that God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the soldiers. And so we know that that's how it happened. Verse 13, then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? So they get a safe distance away. This is good. David calls to the army. He's trying to wake him up like, hey, wake up, look over here, right? I mean, I can see this happening. Right? And, and he's, he's having a call multiple times. Right? The, multiple times. We see that in the verbs. The, the way that this is written. It indicates that he's calling over and over to try to wake them up. Right? Sleepy Saul in the middle there. And you got Abner who should have been guarding the king with his life. Right? Asleep. Right? And so he's calling out to them to try to wake him up. And Abner finally responds... Right? And David has a few choice words for his replacement, right? As, as the head of Saul's guard. David says this to Abner in verse 15. And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Now, this is pretty strong language here. Are you not a man? He's calling Abner out. Abner, who was leading the elite soldiers, the 3,000 plus, right? He's leading the armies of Saul. And David says, hey, you're not much of a man. Now, this might prove, it will prove actually to be a strategic error, smack-talking Abner, because down the road, Abner's going to be a thorn in David's side. But we're not going to jump ahead to that yet. But he's calling him out here, right? He's calling him out and saying, hey, aren't you supposed to be protecting the king? Abner dropped the ball here in a huge way. Abner was supposed to be protecting Saul. I'm sure he assumed when he laid down or fell asleep sitting up or however it was, 
that he thought, man, these other 3,000 soldiers will wake up if something happens, right? I'm in the middle here with Saul. And yet they were able to get all the way in there. And, and, and to fail to protect the king would have been bad news back in that days, right? And, and much like the piece of, of, of Saul's robe that David cut off and, and held up, right? He had lopped that off. David calls attention here to the missing spear in the water bottle. So is David doing the same thing that he regretted last time? Well, we'll have to, we'll keep reading. We'll find out. But he, he says, Hey, I've got the spear. Hey, I've got the water. Look, look by Saul's head where it should be. And, and then that way Abner knew that what David said was the truth. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is at my hand? Now this should sound familiar. This is the same sort of words and engagements that went on last time, right? Why are you chasing me? I've done nothing against you, right? Why do you continue to come after me? Saul calls out to him, my son, right? Is this your voice? My son, right? He's, he's out there trying to kill him. And yet he says, yo, oh, my son, is this you, right? And, and, and in David, though, we see humility. We see real humility. He calls Saul, just like he did in chapter 24, my Lord and the king. In other words, again, still acknowledging God's timing, God's placement, He questions Saul, though, again at the end of this, and I think rightfully so. Why are you chasing me? What have I done to you? What evil have I done to you? Now, therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David continues on here and he's kind of making his case. Okay. We've seen David have to do this a few times, but we got this murderous pursuit going on. Saul's not out there with the elite soldiers trying to just find David to have lunch with him. Right. He's got, he's got a purpose. He's going after him. But what really got my attention as I was reading through this this week was the second part of verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. If you look there at the, at the second part of 19 and the first part of verse 20, you see really what David has lost during this time. It says there, uh, it talks about the heritage of the Lord and, and having to go and serve other gods. In other words, he was chased away from the tabernacle, his place of worship, right? The Israelites' place of worship. And he says, now, therefore... Let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, don't kill me out here in the wilderness. My rightful place, the place I want to be, is in the encampment of Israel. In with the the Lord, worshiping at the temple. Right? I mean, he wants to be there. And Saul has chased him to the outskirts. David lost his home. David lost his wife. 
Remember his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter? Well, we already know that Saul's already married her off again. So his first wife there, Michael, he's lost friends. He's lost his position and so much more by being banished from the kingdom. And David is trying to make his case. Saul, I have done nothing to you or against you. Why do you continue to chase me like that? But, and look what he prioritizes, right? The, the worship. Being with his God, the God of Israel. He says, why would you make me go out and, and worship or serve other gods? In other words, why would you push me so far away that there's no other choice? There's no place to go to worship. Back in this day and age, everybody worshipped at the same tabernacle. Everybody came together. Even if you lived far off, you would come in for worship, right? And David's saying, I can't come home and worship. Now here, since Jesus Christ came and has kind of instituted the church, we can meet anywhere. But that wasn't the way that it was for Israel. So this was, this was a real stress in David's life. This was hard on him. He not only was being chased... By a guy who wanted to murder him, but he wasn't able to worship God. And that was of high importance to him. And we see that here in the speech. There was a huge cost for him being banished from the kingdom. That idea of public worship, being with God-fearing people, people of the same uh, belief. And then that's why, like I said, in essence, they've, they pushed him out to have to worship other gods. Or at least that being the only opportunity there. I got a few questions for you today in light of these verses, because uh, I think Kevin calls this a sermon within a sermon, and I really like that. So I was like, I'm going to grab that uh, as we were talking this week. I'm going to use that. Do you highly prioritize church? I mean, you're here this morning. Awesome. It's summertime. You don't have to be. You could be on the game. But do you, when you are absent from church, how do you feel? Is it really not a big deal or do you miss meeting with God's people and worshiping God? Do you crave the presence of God amongst the people? Even if you don't have a good voice like me, do you worship God and are you empowered by the people around you? Are you emboldened? Are you, are you encouraged to worship even though your voice may not be great because of those around you? Are you, are you flipping about worship or do you even stand in the back and maybe say, I'll go sit down once the pastor gets up there, starts talking because I don't really sing much. I don't, I don't see the value of corporate worship or I worship on my own. I'd rather just play a CD in the car, right? Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, my daughter just laughed at me for saying CD. I know I'm old. Okay. Do, you know, but do you just, do you, do you say to yourself, I, I worship in my own way. I don't need corporate worship, Right. I would challenge you on all of that in light of this verse and other places in scripture. There is a value and an importance of worshiping God corporately with others who believe the same thing. And worship is not just singing as, as we talk about here all the time. It's through the word. This is worship, listening to God's word, applying it to your life. And then of course, community. All of that can be worship. And we want to be a church that's healthy in all of those areas. So that would be my encouragement to you. And kind of the, the last thing for those of you that have children, this is kind of the bonus question to, to challenge yourself with this week, is what have you effectively communicated to your kids about church? 
If we were to talk to your kids over there that are fifth grade, fourth grade, third grade, what would they say about why you come to church? Is it important to your family? And if so, why is it important to your family? Because I hope they see it as something more than just checking off a box, right? Because that's someplace that we all have to get through too. It's, it's not about being here on Sunday morning. It's what happens once you get here. And would your children understand the importance of church attendance and worshiping God, even when you're on vacation, right? Is that something you prioritize when you're with family, let's say, and, and not around your own home church? I want to be like David. I read these verses and I go, man, it would be easy to breeze right past that. But I want to be a man like David who misses corporate worship. If I miss worship, I want to miss it. You know what I'm saying? If, if, if I'm not here, that should be hard on me because I value this and I see what God is doing here. Right. And I think we all can grow in that area. And so I want to crave the presence of the Lord with his people. Right. And that's why I want to be here on a Sunday morning. I want to be here with you boldly approaching the throne of grace through prayer, singing, right, from the bottom of my heart, whether my voice is good or not, right, and listening to God's word speak to me and speak to you. So anyways, enough with that one. Let's get back to the other big idea, which is good, uh, and we want to make sure that we focus in on that. I think I just jumped past the slide. I'm going to go back here. Now, therefore, uh, you know, I did read that one. Okay, I was right. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned, return my son, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. So again, we see Saul do the same thing he's done in the past. He, he, he's like, my son, I'm sorry. Uh, I won't behave the same, right? I, I, I won't try to kill you. He's doing the same thing that he's done. So this is Saul who just a couple chapters ago came out looking for him, said, Hey, I'm sorry. And went back home. Now he's back out again, trying to chase him down. This is a troubled man. Saul doesn't know how to apologize, repent and change his behavior, right? He is, he is still acting the same towards David. He sell, he tells David, you can return, but David is smart enough to know that that's not going to be a good idea, right? But what we do see here is Saul admitting in front of these 3,000 soldiers, right, that he is acting pretty foolishly, even though he is the king, right? And and that's a big thing, because I think these soldiers are seeing who Saul really is. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king, let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness for the Lord gave you into my hand today and I would not put my, uh, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David returned Saul's spear. So unlike when he cut off the robe and kind of disgraced the king, we see that David took the spear, but then gave it back. Now, interestingly enough, I can't really give you a whole lot of comment on it because commentaries don't talk about because it's not written here. He doesn't return the canteen. Okay, so I don't really know what's going on there. He returns a spear, which is hugely important, right? And yet, the thing that represented life, right, in the, in the wilderness, his canteen, was not returned. 
Unfortunately, we don't know because there was nothing more written about that. His comment, though, about God rewarding every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, though, is fact, right? If you have constant, if you've been constantly uh, slandered or betrayed, belittled by someone you know, right? You you can know that this this feeling here of of needing or wanting to exact revenge can be so heavy on you and so real. And yet we see here where David, who we know felt that way, understood. That God is going to reward man for his righteousness and his faith. Did it die there? Oh, there we go. Okay. Maybe I bumped it with my thumb. So if you've been betrayed, if you've been slandered, you've been belittled. Sorry about that. There we go. If you've been in that position before where this has happened to you, maybe it's a, a, an, an ex, an ex-husband or an ex-wife, right? Uh, that wants to belittle you or slander you, make co-parenting impossible. Maybe it's a, a wayward child who's willing to spurn you and, and say hard words to your face. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss, Right? That seems like they're, all they're doing is plotting evil against you. How can they make you look foolish or make you look bad? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe you got one of those neighbors that lies about you to the other neighbors or makes your life difficult. You and I are called to be like David. We need to recognize that God is going to repay people good for good and evil for evil. And are you willing to be that kind of a person who says, you know what? I won't seek revenge. I'll allow God to take care of that. Do we trust him? That's kind of one of the questions I, 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 I thought about a lot this week. Do I trust God to do that? And does my life reflect that? That God will take care of it. He is the one who will make all things right. Or do I try to take things into my own hands? Do I try to make things better or right? Or, or do I feel justified in my need for revenge or vengeance? So those are some lessons I think we can learn there from David, uh, again, in the way that he engaged with Saul. The chapter ends, then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son, David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his palace. Again, in narrative, we're, we're hearing a story. Right? But at the end of this story, we see these words spoken between Saul and David. And these are the last words spoken between Saul and David. Saul wishes him well and blesses him. He doesn't step away from the, the throne. right? He doesn't say, well, why don't you come and take your rightful place? He blesses him. So what's behind that blessing? You know, kind of hollow. But he blesses him and says... You will do well. You will succeed in them. And this kind of brings to an end this kind of story uh, of David and Saul and, and just the pursuit of David that Saul, it seems like, endlessly had for these 20-some years. And David continued to love his enemy. Back in chapter 24, David learned he must not take Saul's life, right? Right? Just because Saul was an enemy. Last week in, in 25 or, or chapter 25, we, we saw this story uh, of Nabal and Abigail, right? And we learned that the vengeance 
that will happen or that should happen in this life should be left to God. But this week in chapter 26, I think that God gives uh, uh, him this advanced lesson. David, who's just going to be coming into the throne here shortly. He says to him, you need to love your enemies. You need to do, allow me to continue to be the one who makes things right. David decided, the word that he used there for Saul is that his life was precious. He gave value to Saul, even though Saul Saul was living in a way, right, that didn't deserve value. Saul was trying to kill David. And yet David said to him, your life is precious. That kind of thought process, those kind of words towards an enemy can only come from a love that God the Father can give to you. So that's an area I think that we, as we're looking at lessons from leaders, can be challenged in, right? We need to grow in our love for our enemies. Those who want to do harm to us would like to see us fail. How do we love them? How do we see their lives as precious and valuable, right? Not only if they change their ways, but as it sits, as they sit, There wasn't a caveat between David and God and David and Saul that if Saul changes, I'll see his life as precious. No, he extended that to him even in the midst of this. We've been called to love our enemies. Can you say the same about those who would be enemies in your lives that David could say about Saul? Do we view their lives as precious?